0: Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show.
1: Well, good afternoon and welcome to the day after election day on the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend is producing, Clark Hilton Engineering, Dan Rice has given up his office for the sake of the cause. Today, we're going to talk about what's happening, and um, some questions are answered, some are still pending. We'll try to provide you with as much information as we can confidently pass along, um, and we'll wind through as much of that as we can throughout the course of the day. We may also have an opportunity to speak with Stacy Thacker. She's the author of Threadbare Prayer, Prayers for Hearts that Feel Hidden, Hurt, Or hopeless. It's very timely. We're also going to uh, uh, determine whether or not we're going to share that conversation with you today or maybe pass that along to another day based on information related to the election. Well, let's get started. Joe Biden has won Wisconsin, according to the Associated Press. They projected shortly after the Trump campaign vowed to request an immediate recount in the state which um, the Trump campaign has dutifully now done. Joe Biden uh, has it's been called for Joe Biden by the Associated Press and others, projected at least shortly after uh, that vow was made, and the uh, Trump campaign moved forward in response to that. They also filed suit in uh, Pennsylvania and Michigan. The uh, president's campaign on Wednesday filed lawsuits seeking to halt ballot counting, in Michigan, and a suit has been filed in Pennsylvania, which is perhaps one of the most important states um, of the battleground states as well. Taking a look a bit closer to home, some of the headlines relating to the election here in the state of Oregon: close races will decide if um, House Democrats maintain the supermajority here in Oregon. The answer seems to be yes, they will. Oregon decriminalized possession of street drugs the first time in the nation. We'll talk more about that later. Secretary of State Shemia Fagan defeated Kim Thatcher and voters approved legalizing campaign finance limits. Election results spell more taxes for businesses and, for that matter, everyone else. Mr. DeFazio defeated Scarlato's in District 4, that um, House race. Uh, Portland protests a Catholic school that was widely uh, vandalized. Portland protests... um, Uh, In other places as well, we'll uh, let you know more about those details. Adrian Brown, won hotly contested Multnomah County circuit judge seat, changes to Portland's water fund spending, appears to be losing. The free preschool measure passed, and a new income tax for Multnomah County goes along with it. Garbage fee hikes are headed to Multnomah, Washington, and Clackamas counties. The Multnomah County Library Expansion um, ballot measure, that passed. Oregon Attorney General's race, Ellen Rosenblum, won a third term. Oregon became the first state to legalize psychedelic mushrooms. Oregon Democrat Jeff Merkley won his U.S. Senate re-election, and Oregon voters enacted big hikes in cigarette, vape, and other smoke taxes. Uh, Portland picked um, Mr. Mapes over the incumbent Udaley for the city council, and Portland voters approved new civilian-run police oversight board selected by the city council. Portland voters passed a new uh, five-year tax levy to fund city parks, again, more taxes. And Ted Wheeler elected to uh, has been elected to a second term as Portland's mayor. Uh, Tobias Reed wins re-election as Oregon State Treasurer, and voters approved the Portland Public School $1.2 billion measure to create the uh, Center for Black Student Excellence. Voters rejected Metro's payroll tax to fund billions in transportation projects, and Washington Governor Jay Inslee won $1. A third term. That's just a quick rundown of some of the issues in the state of Oregon. Well, as mentioned, incumbent Ted Wheeler fought off a strong challenge from urban policy consultant Sarah Ionarone to claim a second term as mayor of Portland. With more than 90 percent of the votes counted earlier in the day, Wheeler led Ionarone 46 to 41 percent. Wednesday, write-in candidates, uh, which uh, include community activist Teresa Rayford, had pulled 13% of the vote. The win makes Wheeler the first person since Vera Katz, who served three terms from the early 1990s to mid-2000s, elected two consecutive terms as mayor of Oregon, Oregon's largest city. Wheeler gave a brief statement via Zoom around 11.25 last night, thanking voters for their support, and said he understood many people are frustrated over the direction of the city amid the pandemic and protests. We're going to need to come together as never before, he says, to address short-term issues and the long-term changes and investments needed to rebuild our economy, rebuild confidence in law enforcement, and restore hope for future. Wheeler took one question from reporters. It was a query on whether he'd spoken to his mayoral challenger. After saying he hadn't, Wheeler thanked everyone for their time and then left the Zoom call. I guess Susie probably spoke with her at some point following. Some key takeaways from Oregon's election. Unlike nationally, few Oregon races were undecided after election night. Oregon uh, well-oiled vote-by-mail system delivered decisive results in the vast majority of contests last night. Oregon's six contested seats in Congress. It's uh, three races for statewide uh, state office. Nearly all legislative races, key money measures, all were decided shortly after the balloting deadline, thanks to swift action by voters and election officials. A few key races still pending, two key Oregon Senate races that will keep uh, will help decide the balance of power in the legislature. A tight race for uh, Gresham Mayor, a relatively minor ballot measure about Portland Water Bureau billing rights are worth watching, but don't remotely approach the national breath-holding over the presidential race. Also, Oregon Democrats grip on the state office is still very strong. Oregon has uh, tilted blue for some time, but this year's election results reinforce the state's Democratic voters' dominance. The statewide votes for former Vice President Joe Biden to become president and incumbent Senator Jeff Merkley to serve another term were overwhelming, as were the votes to install the three Democratic candidates for statewide office. Incumbents, Attorney General Ellen Rosenblum, Treasurer Tobias Reed, and newcomer Shamia Fagan as Secretary of State. Oregonians want people to be um, free to use drugs. At least some Oregonians do. Two ballot measures: one to um, uh, to one to decriminalize possession of most street drugs, and the other to allow supervised use of. Um, uh, I think it's silobin, passed overwhelmingly. Both are nationally notable as they mark the first time any state has permitted the non-prosecuted possession or use of these substances. To be fair, backers of the measure to decriminalize drugs, many of whom are former addicts with long records of hard-won sobriety, said they want people um, caught with small amounts of heroin, meth, and other drugs to get assessed and treated to end their addiction, not to keep using, but it would not be a crime for them to do so. There's the rub. And Multnomah County voters are soft on taxes, but uh, for causes, um, including parks, libraries, and schools. The global pandemic that has struck Oregon hard in recent uh, Uh, months and torpedo the U.S. employment market hasn't stopped Multnomah County voters from endorsing tax increases or keeping property taxes at current levels to aid kids, library users, parks goers and the like. The current results uh, show them saying yes to a new tax to build and upgrade libraries, a new parks operating levy a big new school construction bond and for all the county's preschoolers. Hope I can stay in my house. I don't know. Well, as I mentioned, Oregon made history uh, in the movement to reconsider the nation's war on drugs by becoming the first state to decriminalize small amounts of heroin and other street drugs. Voters overwhelmingly supported Measure 110, a coup for the New York based Drug Policy Alliance, the same criminal justice reform group that backed Oregon's successful marijuana legislation effort in 2014. Partial returns as of late last night show the measure winning 59% to 41%. Peter Zuckerman, campaign chairman for the measure, called the win a big step forward. Today is a huge day of celebration, but the work is not over, and we have a lot more work to do to win a better system for everybody. Well, supporters believe U.S. drug policy has filled the country's jails with nonviolent offenders who need treatment instead of incarceration and has disproportionately affected generations of African-Americans. The measure also got a boost from um, John Legend, who recently tweeted his support, um, and that will be the law in uh, in the state of Oregon. By the way, the measure has three key components. It reduces misdemeanor drug possession to a non-criminal violation on par with traffic offenses. People with small amounts of drugs, including heroin, cocaine, methamphetamine, ecstasy, LSD, and others, uh, methadone and oxycodone, uh, will get a ticket and face a $100 fine or have the option of being screened for a substance abuse disorder. It reduces penalties for what is uh, are now felony drug possession uh, cases, which involve larger quantities under Measure 110. Most of those offenses will be misdemeanors, and it funnels millions in marijuana tax revenue toward what it calls addiction recovery centers where people can be screened and directed to treatment options. Those tax dollars will also go to a drug treatment and recovery services fund overseen by the state that could be used to pay for treatment, doesn't have to be, but could be used to pay for treatment housing or other programs designed to address addiction. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're talking about some of what's gone on in our elections and we'll continue in just a few moments.
0: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
1: Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Just noting that uh, the numbers are increasing in the presidential race. Uh, The race, of course, to 270 is the the goal. And as we're pre-recording this program, Joe Biden is up to 264, the path for for, uh, Donald Trump narrowing. We'll continue to follow the story. And of course, by the time this program airs live at four to six, that may be a more decisive number than imagined. They have given uh, Biden Michigan. Maloma County's highest earners will foot the bill for a universal preschool system that prioritizes access for black, indigenous and other communities of color. As voters supported the measure, the uh, county uh, backed Preschool for All initiative won majority support in partial returns with 64.2 percent of voters backing it as of late last night. The preschool measure is a 1.5% tax on incomes of more than $125,000 per year and joint filings of $250,000 per year. In 2026, the tax will scale up to 2.3% on incomes of $125,000 and joint filings of $250,000. The higher brackets of $250,000 for single filers and $400,000 for joint filers will occur in additional 1.5% 1.5% as well, again, passed in Multnomah County. Well, a crowd of 300 people marched from Revolution Hall through the streets of southeast Portland last night. A gathering described as a unity march took place on um, election night here in portland demonstrators started gathering in southeast portland at revolution hall at about 5 p.m the crowd chanted the names of black people killed by law enforcement journalists on the scene described people chanting in the streets as they marched estimates from journalists in the crowd said hundreds of people marched um the Multnomah county sheriff's office provided an 8 p.m update as uh, voting in oregon officially closed for voters to drop off their ballots uh, at drop-off locations in the city, just before 8 p.m., people marching could be heard chanting the, um, the about racial injustice with seemingly little focus on the presidential election, as seen in the uh, video that was published by Oregon Public Broadcasting. During the 9 p.m. update, uh, on behalf of the Unified Command with Oregon uh, State Police and several hundred people were continuing their march down Belmont Street, heading east, um, continued, and sometime after 10 p.m., people in the crowd Um, uh, continued on their uh, journey. However, that was not the case in every demonstration last night. This was a peaceful event, but there were others. The 50-block election night... um, uh, Portland Protest March left a trail of graffiti and vandalism, but none of it compared to the unleashing of Portland Central Catholic High School, which was decimated in some ways. Nearly every 10 foot of uh, building was hit with messages of racist accusations, cop bashing and profanity as if they were directly involved in anything. They were there to uh, protest uh, the scrawls, which I cannot repeat because there's fa- profanity that uh, I would not personally use, nor does the FCC allow. But the scrawl attacked the school for white privilege uh, and for several other things as well. This was Central Catholic High School. And the Portland police on election night marched down Belmont Street and quickly encountered the uh, Hereafter restaurant. Uh, With outside diners, the customers quickly left out of fear as the marchers banged on tables, ridiculed the diners, and used a bullhorn in their face, knowing nothing about these individuals. uh, The woman with the bullhorn yelled uh, yelled later, I'm not begging you to join us. It's a command. Now, I don't know where this woman with the bullhorn uh, believes she derives the authority to command her neighbors Uh, to do what she is saying, but that's precisely what happened. Meanwhile, other marchers were shining lights into people's homes, yelling in another bullhorn messages like, you white expletive people need to get down from here and march with us and stop eating your pita bread from new seasons and join us. And intimidation statements like, yes, I can see you in your window. Don't you ignore us. Um, And it went on like that. And, And here in the city of Portland. Well, at uh, one election night location, uh, protesters took over residential streets being led by masked men armed with rifles. I'm not sure how that was permitted. They began marching, shining lights into people's homes and at times chanting at them to get out. One man came out of his own home and said, be peaceful, please don't wreck anything. He even made a love sign over his head saying um, that he loves them. The photo captured the moment. He pointed to the Biden-Harris lawn sign thinking that would give him some cover in his front yard to prove his liberal credentials, but none of that mattered because the crowd immediately turned against the man. Dozens of lights um, were streamed into, uh, into his face, people immediately and instinctively began shouting racist, 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 white privilege, white privilege, white privilege, Karens, Karens, Karens. To some, that means a woman who complains to the manager. Uh, too many liberals say it also means uh, white women who complain about blacks, as in uh, making false police reports. Well, the man tried to emphasize that he agreed with the crowd and that he just didn't want them to wreck anything on their march. Some responded by saying, we don't need a white man to tell us black people what to do. And it it goes on from there. It's just a sad commentary. And I think people think um, their, you know, their liberal credentials are going to give them some cover. That simply is not the case. Now, I'm making a distinction between events that take place and are peaceful from those that are arrogantly led by individuals who believe they have some power and authority over their neighbors to demand and command them to do things to their liking. It is a sad scenario, and whether or not it continues for several days, as has been uh, thought earlier, uh, we'll just have to wait and see. Meanwhile, President Trump and Democratic nominee Joe Biden spun competing narratives. Uh, There was still no clear result in the presidential election, despite each candidate notching wins in a handful of key swing states. uh, In a speech early Wednesday, Trump declared victory in multiple key battleground states, even though it remained unclear who had actually won the votes. The president hinted that the White House would push the Supreme Court to rule over disputed ballots, warning that a very sad group of people was trying to disenfranchise voters. Meanwhile, Biden, speaking earlier in wilmington Delaware, said just after midnight that he was on track to win this election. Be patient, he told supporters. It ain't over until every vote is counted. Every ballot is counted. He added, but we're feeling good. We're feeling good about where we are. As of this moment, and we're recording the program early, Joe Biden had 264 to Donald Trump's 214, and the counting continues with some uh, disputed And uh, among the uh, Trump supporters and a couple of legal challenges as well. Well, the National Guard has um, was brought in to help with Wisconsin ballot continue uh, counting issues. Twitter flagged a Trump tweet warning Democrats are trying to steal the election as misleading. Pennsylvania County is under scrutiny as a judge weighs in on claims. Ballots were canvassed early and changed. A Nevada County judge kept some polls open later after the Trump campaign sued. And the media misjudged Trump's support among non-white voters. Tucker Carlson criticized the mainstream media on Tuesday night for painting the president as a racist who had struggled to attract non-white voters after the president delivered a strong showing in Miami-Dade County, Florida. Elections tell you uh, what the parties actually look like, not what you imagine they look like. So the coalitions became really clear. And in Florida, the Population Center, of course, Miami-Dade County, the biggest county in the state. Hillary Clinton got 334,000 votes in 2016, an hour ago, with 84% reporting. Donald Trump had already outstripped that by more than 100,000 votes. Well, Cuban-Americans, senior citizens, are leaning toward Trump in Florida. CNN's Jake Tapper now insists a Biden landslide was always just a pipe dream for Democrats. Rush Limbaugh says the media's narrative about enthusiasm for Biden will be proven wrong. And Dan Gaynor says left-wing journalists were upset by the strong early showing by Trump as the ballot counting continues. Well, protesters gathered at Black Lives Matter Plaza in D.C. to watch the election night results. Waves of demonstrators gathered there in the uh, uh, near the White House in Washington on Tuesday night, guarded by a strong police presence and reports of at least one minor scuffle. Local news outlets reported that hundreds of demonstrators against and for President Trump were present as they planned to watch the state-by-state results of the 2020 election. Demonstrations could carry on past Tuesday as the winner in the presidential race may not be decided for days scuffles between opposing groups were seen in social media posts but there were moments of calm according to media reports three quarters of americans are concerned about post election violence according to a new poll and a no-climb fence has been installed around the white house an activist group is planning widespread disruptive election activities to thwart a potential trump coup and it continues well election betting odds have flipped in favor of uh, Trump, experts say. And RNC Speaker Kim Classett fell short in a House bid despite her viral campaign ad and Trump support. GOP newcomer Madison Cawthorn wins North Carolina congressional seat vacated by Mark Meadows. And Democrats retain control of the House while the battle remains for the Senate majority. Loeffler and Warnock are headed to a runoff in Georgia, as Collins concedes. And um, ex, uh, an ex-ESPN host, Jamel Hill, says... It's uh, on white people if Trump wins re election. No one else, apparently, uh, uh, no one else, period. Apparently, the fact that Trump garnered about 15% of the black vote is irrelevant in her calculation. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll continue to wind through some election results when we return.
0: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey,
1: okay, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're winding our way through some of the. Election results, some things are known, some things are not known. Some will be announced or decided in the days ahead. Also want to remind you in the 5 o'clock hour, we'll talk with Stacey Thacker. She's the author of Threadbare Prayer, Prayers for Hearts that Feel Hidden, Hurt, or Hopeless. I think we'll take a a break from election coverage uh, to have that conversation. So that's coming up in the 5 o'clock hour. Well, stock futures – Pair gains as Biden wins Arizona. More than $1 billion is expected to be uh, wagered on the 2020 U.S. presidential election, and businesses are paying up to protect workspaces amid potential unrest. Trump or Biden, stimulus relief is in the cards either way. The amount may differ. Amazon plans to double the company's Black leadership over the next two years to ensure inclusive language in their software coding. Well, the election day ended without a TKO, as both candidates still see a path to victory with several states still up for grabs. Or at least that was the case earlier in the day, less and less so as the day wears on. As of early morning, uh, Trump held a slight advantage. He was leading in Georgia, North Carolina, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania and Michigan. That has since changed. Republicans appear to hold control of the Senate, though. A few races were yet to be decided. The GOP held some key races for which Democrats had high hopes. Guy Benson points out that at this hour, that was earlier in the day, McConnell was up by 20, Kentucky, um, in Kentucky, Graham up by 15, Cornyn up by 10, and Marshall up by 12. Again, the Senate, uh, uh, the Republican majority in the Senate appears to hold. Well, polls have failed us once again. The Wall Street Journal points out, their editorial board, by making the 2020 race close and perhaps taking it into overtime, Mr. Trump has pulled off a second huge political surprise. At least a few pollsters might be looking for a new line of work. Well, the outcome, I suppose, will determine whether or not that's the case. Uh, later, it's already clear that the biggest early losers are the pollsters. The mainstream media polls all had Mr. Biden winning in a walk with a popular vote margin in the upper single digits. They were um, off in, uh, in particular on Florida. The outlier pollster, like the Trafalgar Group, often derided by their colleagues, seemed to have better judged the electorate again. Kimberly Strassel points out, I think I put things on record. Final Florida polls, Quinnipiac, Biden up by five, CNBC up by four. Uh, uh, David Harsanyi he looks at how badly they uh, blew Florida as an example of what we might expect in the days ahead with regard to polls. Well, Oregon made uh, national news decriminalizing deadly, highly addictive drugs, and rioters uh, were arrested in Seattle, two arrests in Portland. Pelosi called um, Judge Barrett an illegitimate Supreme Court justice, saying some believe she's setting the stage for court-packing, Given the fact that the majority in the the House seems to have narrowed, it doesn't appear that the the Democrats in the House will have sufficient numbers to pack the court, assuming Republicans would oppose it in the House. A a court declared California governor's executive order unconstitutional. This is a Northern California judge tentatively ruling in favor of state assembly members James Gallagher and Kevin Kiley regarding their lawsuit against Governor Gavin Newsom. The two Republicans are claiming the Democratic governor has abused his power during the COVID-19 pandemic. Pandemic. They've been arguing that the California Emergency Services Act does not provide for one-man rule. And CNN hosts uh, shocked to or were shocked to find Americans uh, find the coronavirus going well and they reveal their overt bias by declaring these people are uh, clearly wrong. Marijuana legalization measures passed in at least four states, New Jersey, Arizona, South Dakota, and Minnesota. D.C. voters uh, voted to decriminalize hallucinogenic mushrooms by a wide margin, and while Oregon decriminalized possession of hard drugs. That's the direction the uh, country seems to be going. Elsewhere in the nation, GOP Representative Greg Giaforte wins the Montana governor's race, ending a 16-year Democrat streak. And Trump's uh, win in Florida is helping to deliver a red wave of Republican victories. Not only did Trump nearly triple his 2016 margin of victory in that state, but Republicans flipped two congressional seats held by Democrats and maintained total control of state government by winning a series of competitive state House and Senate races. Florida voted for a job-killing $15 minimum wage, with both at one point um, uh, Trump and Biden had expressed some interest in. California passed Proposition 22 in a major victory for Uber and Lyft. Utah voted to make hunting and fishing a constitutional right, and Mississippi votes in favor of adopting a new flag absent the Confederate battle cross. With Proposition 115 defeated, Colorado remains among the few states to not bar certain abortions, and Louisiana passed an amendment saying there's no constitutional right to abortion. Well, a candidate in North Dakota who died of COVID in October won his election. You won't be able to serve. Hillary Clinton's disciple James Comey tweeted a photo of himself with a Biden shirt and other gear. Trevor Noah provoked outrage by posting a video of Florida being obliterated by a Death Star. I guess that's what passes for humor these days. Well, this day in history, 1922, the entrance of King Tutankhamun's tomb is discovered in Egypt. 1979, the Iran hostage crisis begins as militants storm the United States embassy in Tehran, seizing its occupants. For some of them, it would be the start of 444 days of captivity. 1980, Republican Ronald Reagan wins the House, uh, the White House, as he defeats uh, President Jimmy Carter. And on this day in history, 1995, Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin is assassinated by a right-wing Israeli minutes after attending a festival of peace two thousand and eight on this day in history Democrat Barack Obama is elected the first black president of the United States defeating Republican John McCain and also in two thousand eight this day in history California voters approved proposition eight, a constitutional amendment outlawing same sex marriage overturning a state Supreme Court decision that gave uh, gay couples the right to wed just months earlier. Well millions of uh, voters are still being count votes rather are still being counted. Uh, today as the 2020 presidential election between President Donald Trump, former vice president, and Democratic nominee Joe Biden hinges on a handful of battleground states. That still um, is the case. The race is still too early to call in those states, and neither candidate is at the 270 electoral vote necessary to win the presidency, despite early uh, victories in some important swing states. Now again, by the time this program airs, that may change. Trump won Florida, Ohio, Texas, and others, while Biden carried Arizona, Minnesota, Uh, new hampshire and others so the race now appears to hinge on nevada north carolina georgia wisconsin that's since been called and michigan and pennsylvania and there have been some challenges in those last three those states all have some votes yet to be uh, reported which despite narrow leads for one candidate or the other remain critical to what final result will be in those states and by extension the presidential election well, it was thought that the fight for the White House could drag on for days or weeks, and that's still possible if there are legal challenges. But with um, Joe Biden at this moment, and we're talking about 2 o'clock at this moment at 2:65, 264, and um, uh, Donald Trump at 214, it might appear that decision might be made, or at least a uh, call might be made prior to days or weeks. But I will guarantee that there will be challenges before this is all settled. So something to... Uh, to monitor and to settle in to wait for. But while the winner of the 2020 presidential election is still in doubt, the winner of to uh, control the Senate isn't. Against long odds the Republicans have held, and by holding, they've eliminated or at least forestalled a serious threat to the composition and functionality of the Senate. Now, for weeks, the political debate has focused on what the Democrats would do if they took control of the upper chamber. You've heard their wish list, packing the Supreme Court and lesser courts, doing away with the filibuster, its traditional protection of minority rights, the granting of statehood to Washington, D.C. and Puerto Rico, thereby guaranteeing four Senate seats in perpetuity to Democrats. Well, who knew the discussion would soon be moot? That apparently is at this point. Now, on a night of high drama, perhaps the most satisfying Senate victories were actually a couple of blowouts. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell mopped the floor with his challenger, a failed 2018 congressional challenger whose Senate bid attracted plenty of deep-pocketed donors. Nevertheless, that race was called shortly before 8 p.m. Eastern time. The final margin for uh, Mitch was uh, around 58 to 37 percent ahead of the uh, Uh, the election. In South Carolina, a similar story played out between Judiciary Committee Chairman Lindsey Graham and a Democrat challenger who spent an obscene amount of money. As National Review's Zachary Evans wrote, the victory for Graham comes after speculation that Democratic challenger Jamie Harrison might have been able to pull off an upset win. Harrison raised about $50 million in the third quarter and was tied with Graham in the polls in October. So questions about the makeup of the U.S. Senate seem at this point, to be settled. You're listening to the Georgine Rice show. We'll be back.
0: You're listening to the Georgine Rice show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
1: We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice show. We're trying to provide some of the election results as they're Uh, coming out and made available. Not everything has been decided, as you know, but some things we do know. Democrats went into the election night confident that they would increase their majority in the U.S. House of Representatives, but they appear to have lost a number of key seats that were won in 2018 while failing to flip seats held by vulnerable Republicans. Some have suggested that this was an election for um, Republican women who were running for the U.S. House. Well, House Democrats had hoped for an increase in seats uh, with a gain of uh, just five seats or so, making a bad night and a gain of 10 to 15, making it a good night. But so far across the board, House Democrats, they've consistently failed to flip seats uh, held by vulnerable Republicans and repeatedly lost Democrats uh, districts flipping from red to blue. In 2018, they could also stand to lose seats in New York, Michigan, and California. They appear to have lost seats they picked up in Iowa, New Mexico, and Florida, as well as Oklahoma in 2018, while also losing a seat held by House Agriculture Committee Chairman Colin Peterson uh, to Republican Michelle Fishbach. Um, they had hoped to nudge out Representative Steve Chabot of. Um, Ohio and Wagner of Missouri, as well as pick up the seats uh, held by retiring Representative Susan Brooks and Peter Olson. But so far, hardly any races have broken in the Democrats' direction. So the Democrats retain um, the majority in the House, but that is a narrower margin uh, between the Democrats and Republicans. So this was a, a better night for Republicans in the House, although they are still in the minority. Well, in other news, Louisiana voters passed an amendment to the state constitution last night, establishing that there is no constitutional right to an abortion. The New York Times reported that 62% of Louisiana voters supported Amendment 1, Love Life Amendment, an amendment stating that nothing in Louisiana state constitution protects the right to abortion or abortion funding. Louisiana has also um, uh, a trigger law automatically banning all abortions if Roe versus Wade is overturned. We are protecting our state's taxpayer dollars and reaffirming Louisiana's pro-life stance. We also believe that our people should have a say in this, um, said the sponsor of the measure, Democratic State Senator uh, Katrina Jackson. We've been working hard to get the word out about what this amendment does and what it doesn't do says the uh, right to life associate director, Angie Thomas, this amendment will make sure that Louisiana's current pro-life laws are protected and can't be undermined by a couple of judges. Abortion advocates argue that if Roe versus Wade is overturned, the amendment unfairly impacts access to abortion. We have several cases heading toward the Supreme court. Any one of them could be a case that undermines abortion rights or overturns abortion protections. Uh, The Guttmacher Institute, um, head Elizabeth Nash said in an interview with NBC News. Well, the executive director of the uh, group, um, Lyft Louisiana, said the amendment is part of a long strategy to strip the right to an abortion, which seems uh, very obvious. This is a critical moment for an amendment like this to be on the ballot. Uh, she went on to say, uh, if we do see Roe versus Wade overturned, it would be um, used to bolster any uh, effort by the legislature to outright ban abortion in the state, which is plainly the idea behind um, this effort in the successful effort in Louisiana. Also, the Supreme Court, with a full bench, will hear oral arguments by teleconference, uh, that's today, about a Catholic social service agency that had been excluded from Philadelphia's foster care program for not accepting same-sex couples as foster parents. The case is Fulton versus Philadelphia. It pits religious liberty against discrimination laws protecting members of the LGBTQ community. And because it is similar to previous cases that have come before the court, some legal experts have said there is potential for a narrow ruling. In twenty eighteen, for example, in the case of Colorado Baker, who said that he wouldn't make a wedding cake for a same-sex couple because it would violate his religious beliefs, the court issued a narrow ruling for the Baker, saying the state administrative agency that had ruled against him had been hostile to his religious beliefs. Well, at a webinar this uh, fall, sponsored by Georgetown University's Law School, Paul Clementi, a partner at the Washington law firm of Kirkland and Ellis and a solicitor general of the United States from 2005 to 2008, said the court has a lot of uh, off-ramps with this upcoming case that could allow it to just address parts of the issue. He said the court may find a way for Philadelphia to give the faith-based agency an exemption to the anti-discrimination law. The decision that looms over the court in this case is the 1990 Employment Division versus Smith decision that involved two American Indians who were denied um, unemployment benefits in Oregon after they were fired for using peyote, a hallucinogenic drug, in a religious ceremony, well, the court ruled in favor of Oregon, saying that its right to legislate against drug use superseded a religious group's right to use a drug as part of its spiritual ritual. Well, the ruling has been interpreted as giving state and local governments broad powers over religious principles, and whether or not that's how the uh, U.S. Supreme Court decides in this case remains to be seen. But arguments are being heard there today with a full complement. On the uh, on the court. In his petition in the case, uh, Catholic Social Services urged the Supreme Court to overturn the Smith decision, saying that even though the agency's program should be allowed under the ruling, the decision has confused rather than clarified the law and should be reconsidered. Clemente said that he would uh, be shocked if the Smith decision was overruled another professor of law and political science at the University of Notre Dame and the director of the university's program on church, state and society. said so the court could rule for the agency on the narrow ground that the city's policies are not really neutral or generally applicable, similar to its 2018 decision, Masterpiece Cake Shop versus Colorado Civil Rights Commission, where it favored the baker. Now, writing this summer for uh, Scottish blog, Uh, A blog about the Supreme Court, he said the case would likely revisit its Smith decision, which promised more clarity on religious liberty claims, but has instead brought up different interpretations from the lower court. So those arguments are being heard today, and it will be interesting uh, once we get a transcript of that, but also it will be interesting uh, to see what uh, the decision ultimately is, and that, of course, will be months away. Well, regardless of the winner, few voters expect us uh, all to get along after Election Day. In fact, just 27 percent of likely U.S. voters think Trump supporters and Biden supporters are likely to find common ground on many or any of the major issues facing the nation. And that includes only 8 percent who say it's very likely. Well, a new Rasmussen Reports National Telephone, and online survey, found that 68 percent consider common ground between the two sides unlikely with 31% who say it's not at all likely, virtually impossible. Well, these views are shared across the partisan spectrum. Just 9% of Republicans and 10% of Democrats, 5% of voters not affiliated with either major party, think Trump supporters and Biden supporters are very likely to find common ground on any major issue. Well, if the president wins re-election, 67% of voters think violent protests are likely to follow, with 36% who say they are very likely. But if Joe Biden wins, by comparison, 52% say violent protests are likely to continue, including 28% who believe they are very likely. So not a whole lot of difference between the two, but some. Well, the survey uh, suggests that while the election has come to an end and we're waiting for the outcome of many of these contests, the majority of Americans don't think this is going to be the end of the vitriol of the strong disagreements between those who hold differing points of view on election issues. Now, my question is, will that be different among those who name the name of Christ? We're going to talk more about that later in the program. But we've got news and traffic coming up here at the top of the hour, and we'll share a conversation with Stacy Thacker. She's the author of Threadbare Prayer, prayers for hearts that feel hidden, hurt, or hopeless. And if you fit into any one of those categories, you'll want to listen up to Stacy Thacker when she joins us in just a few moments.
0: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
1: Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, life sometimes brings difficult situations or circumstances that can leave us feeling run down. We can be drained, worn out and threadbare. We all know what that's like, having survived a global pandemic for the last several months. Well, illness, the death of a family member, the loss of a job, natural disasters, a pandemic. These are events that um, leave many of us struggling in ways we can't articulate. Well, these are the times we most desperately need prayer, but they can also be the times we simply don't have the words to form a prayer. How do you pray when you can't find the words? Well, my next guest answers that question with a very simple but profound book, Threadbare Prayers, Prayers for Hearts that Feel Hidden, Hurt, or Hopeless. Well, Stacey Thacker, she presents 100 Simple Yet Heartfelt Devotions to guide readers on on the days they don't know what to pray or how to pray. Each entry in the uh, attractive, it's gift-worthy devotional contains a Bible verse, a brief thought, and a simple, concise prayer to encourage the reader's hearts. Well, Stacey Thacker is an author. She's a blogger, a speaker, and believer who loves God's Word and connecting with women. Her passion is to encourage women in their walks with God and to equip them to study the Bible. She created the blog Community Mothers and Daughters and now blogs on her uh, site, stacythacker.com. Stacy is the author of seven books including Hope for the Weary Mom, Let God Meet You in the Mist or in the Mess, and she's written a series of Bible studies, The Girlfriend's Guide to the Bible. She worked with Campus Crusade for Christ for 5 years before becoming a full-time mom to four daughters and she joins us today to talk about her latest book, uh, Simply Threadbare Prayer. Stacy, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Well, thank you for having me. I hope you're having a great day today.
1: Well, I am. You know, this is a challenging season for all of us. There are a lot of things that have converged in a uh, in a single point, and I think a lot of people are very weary, and your book is timely because uh, for those of us who are weary and sometimes struggle to articulate what's in our hearts, this is a great resource uh, for us. First of all, let me invite you to define what a threadbare prayer is.
2: Yeah, a threadbare prayer is really just a simple prayer based on Scripture that's easy to remember. Um, I think sometimes we all have those times, like you said, that we we struggle to find the words we 've asked why we 've asked how we 've asked how long, and we really we 're looking for words to to pray and I think one of the best places to go when we don 't have the words is to go to go to the word, go to scripture, we can let scripture form our words and that that 's really what a threadbare prayer is
1: you begin at the very um, early part of the book uh, to describe a circumstance in which you uh, really thought about the concept of being threadbare. Both your husband and your daughter had been hospitalized at the same time, but in two different locations, and you were just stretched. Can you kind of describe that feeling of uh, being overwhelmed, but having um, the confidence that we can go to God's word and we have access to his ear uh, in those, uh, those challenging times?
2: Yeah, uh, those feelings I think everybody can identify with just being yes. overwhelmed and desperate. It's just like that desperation feeling that you have. And I think as, uh, as someone who, you know, loves God and has walked with God and, and, and believes in prayer and, and relies, I mean, I have a deep faith, but I think we all come to those moments where we finally realize that we need help. You know what I mean? Like we realize mm-hmm. that we can't. We can't, what I would say, like white knuckle our way through a situation. Like we are just fully dependent on the Lord. And and the sad thing is, is it sometimes takes trials to put us in that situation where we really want and need to call on Jesus in those moments that are desperate. And so I think really at the core, um, a threadbare woman is someone that is just determined, even in those moments, not to put distance between her and the Lord. It's so easy to push him away when you're hurting But really what we need to do is draw near and hold on to him, even if we're just hanging by a thread. And I've just really found that prayer is just one of the best ways I have of just hanging on for dear life is through prayer.
1: Now, the book is filled with very simple prayers. It could be used as a devotional. How do you envision your readers um, benefiting the most by reading Threadbare Prayer?
2: Yeah, I think there's a lot of different ways. I think just as a morning devotional, or I've had a lot of people say that they use it at night before they go to bed, and it helps them just to read through the prayer. There's a verse and a very short devotional thought, and then at the end, just a simple prayer. And a lot of people have said, you know, I love reading these at night because it helps me fall asleep with a prayer, knowing that God is going to take care of me, and I don't have to worry and stay up and not sleep. Um, But also, I think it would be great just to use it. You could journal your way through it. You could um, find a prayer that you could pray for a friend who's going through a hard time, and you could jot a note to them and say, hey, I prayed this for you today. Um, I just think there's a lot of different ways. I love the fact that it's simple and easy to read. It takes, I mean, literally a minute to, to read each of the prayers. It's, it's a pretty easy read. You don't have to have a lot of margin to do it, I guess is what I'm trying to say.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is important when you're in that that status of being threadbare. Uh, in the book, you share stories of some of your own threadbare moments. Can you share some of them with us? Uh, those times when you found yourself grasping for words to pray and turn to God's word and and journaling as well, which is how much of what you've written here was birthed.
2: Yeah, I think you're never more threadbare when when you you're in a crisis situation. And our family is just we've just gone through several and, and kind of not even just one at a time, they kind of stacked up right on top of each other in the midst of one, something else would happen. But you mentioned at the top of the show, probably our the biggest and hardest thing we went through as a family is um, three years ago. My husband who was 48 at the time, suffered a sudden cardiac arrest and his life really hung in the balance. And for weeks um, we've, I found myself as a mother of four, um, you know, having to make decisions for my husband and my girls and my family. And my husband was, you know, he was in a coma. Uh, it was just a really challenging time. Now, God was kind and merciful and he made a recovery and you know, he's doing well today. But in those moments and those those hospital room moments or those moments where you're alone at home and, and you're trying to figure out how to take the next breath, those moments that are just, they just it's like a storm that comes on you and you just, you're, you're crying out, like literally save us Lord. Um, That's really the moments that these prayers um, really took, took form, especially the one I, during that time that I really hung on to was Psalms 23 one, which, you know, is a psalms we all think of at times, but it's the Lord is my shepherd and I lack nothing. And I just hung on to that prayer for days and weeks and really Um, let that just be kind of the undercurrent of my prayer during those times, because I didn't know what to ask for at that point. Mm -hmm. But just leaning into the Lord as my shepherd really helped me to understand that he was going to take care of us no matter what
1: yeah absolutely and sometimes we're in those when we're in those stressful moments it's difficult to recall now where are the scriptures that i uh, that are really encouraging to me that feed me that help restore me and uh, to have them in a single volume I think is very helpful when you're in the middle of that kind of situation. Is it also helpful during times when you're just weary or overcome by busyness. And I think that describes many of us, not only through this season, but throughout just life in general, where there is a a weariness about our days and um, oftentimes a busyness.
2: Mm -hmm. Well, definitely. I mean, I think everyone right now has felt as we've gone through this season of pandemic and COVID, I think everyone's just carrying around with them an extra layer of grief. We're all kind of carrying Mm -hmm. extra weight and so I think if you add that to just a normal thing, I mean, just getting groceries and doing laundry and all the things we do working now, we're all working from home and there's all these things that just, they, they're just wearing, they just wear on you. And when you think about even the word threadbare, it's, it's, it's consistent daily use that, you know, makes a coat become threadbare or a pair of jeans, like rip at the knee. Like it's not necessarily a big tragic crisis event. Sometimes that does happen, but very often our faith wears thin when it's just, a, just the day in and the day out of just normal everyday life. And so I do think this is a book that you could grab even in those moments when you just needed a little bit of hope. You just needed a little bit of something to, to help you make it through, even just the day. Um, it doesn't have to be a large, a large event. It could be just, you know, normal life. I think we all feel that from time to time.
1: We're talking uh, this afternoon with Stacey Thacker. She's the author of Threadbare Prayer, Prayers for Hearts that Feel Hidden hurt or hopeless and i think many of us can relate especially during this season but certainly beyond as well we need to take a quick break but we'll be back in just a few moments again you're listening to the georgine rice show
0: you're listening to the georgine rice show podcast is aired on 93.9 kpdq
1: welcome back you're listening to the georgine rice show and i'm continuing my conversation with stacy thacker she is a prolific author and her latest book is threadbare prayer prayers for hearts that feel hidden hurt or hopeless. I think many of us struggle when we cannot find the words to pray and might be reluctant to um, rely on another's words um, and and imagine that God will hear us. How do we pray when we lack the words, but have access to a resource that might help us along the way? Does God hear us in that circumstance?
2: Mm,
1: Absolutely.
2: I call those borrowed words, and I, I think that is absolutely fine. I think God looks at our heart and it doesn't matter if they're your words or someone else's if you pray them from your heart. But so one of the things that really encourages me, um, is a verse from Romans 8, 26 that says that the spirit helps us in our weakness, even when we don't know what to pray as we ought, that the spirit himself intercedes for us. And I just love that, that the spirit knows our hearts and he knows, um, that we, what we want to say, even when we can't say it. And I think that that's completely and totally fine. Um, When you don't have those words to trust um, that God has the words and he is praying on your behalf.
1: Now, oftentimes these kinds of threadbare prayers happen when we're in the wilderness. Is there a way to prepare for those seasons when we find ourselves in the wilderness or do we just always find ourselves surprised by them? Is there some way to anticipate and prepare for that season that will come?
2: Well, I I don't know if we can anticipate it necessarily, but I do believe that we can prepare um, I think it was um, Billy Graham said something to the effect of "You're either in a trial, going through a trial, you've just come out of a trial." Like y- the idea is that at some point we're going to need uh-huh. those resources. I think what we do in the seasons when we're not we're not in the wilderness season is that we we, we take time to be in the Word, we pray, and as best we can, we find deep fellowship with other believers. Um, we listen to Christian talk shows like this. We listen to rate you know worship music, praise music that build us up. Um, I think nothing prepares you for the wilderness, like going through a hard time. And so I think you can also draw on those times that you've had before in your life where you've ha- you've gone through hard times and you've seen, you know what, God was faithful to us then,
1: and he will be faithful again. That's right. Now, you shared one of your favorite Bible verses that spoke to you during time that you spent in the wilderness, um, the Lord, um, you are my shepherd and I lack nothing. Can you share some of your other favorite uh, Bible verses that have been a comfort to you?
2: Mm. Yeah, one that I love is from Psalms one sixteen two, and it says, "Because he bends down to listen, I will pray as long as I have breath." And a friend shared that with me, and that has become one of my favorite prayers. Is just to re- because it reminds me that God is positioned in such a way that He's listening for us. He's leaning down towards us to listen to us. So that's that's one that I love. I also happen to love Psalms ninety one one um and the and the threadbare prayer that comes from that is just lord you're my secret dwelling place just a reminder that we can tuck ourselves in the shelter of his wing and, and and underneath his shadow so we can get so close to him it's just such a sweet and i think protective place that we can draw near to
1: now for many of us we want to minister to friends or family members while they're going through one of those threadbare times is it better to try to offer encouragement or to simply offer a listening ear? How do you suggest we approach others who may be struggling?
2: I think sometimes when when our friends are hurting, I think we struggle with what to say. We think we have to say something really profound. What meant the most to me, I can tell you time and time again, was prayer and and just presence, people being with me. And and just saying, Hey, I'm praying for you. And maybe sometimes just praying over me, like just praying in that moment. It doesn't have to be uh, a, a really strong sermonette on how we suffer and what, you know, it just, if you just sit with someone, you know, maybe take them a coffee or take them, you know, some cookies or something. It just seems so simple, but just showing that you care, it just goes a long, long
1: way. Yeah, that ministry of presence. And I would encourage, you know, a copy of the book Thread Prayer that gives them a resource to to turn to, to remind them of what God's Word has to say that is so encouraging and comforting during those times when we're in the the wilderness. What what would you say to someone who is right now, and I would imagine many of us would fit into this category, uh, feel that we're in the middle of a desert. Um, We've just finished a contentious election that's not resolved. We're in the middle of a pandemic. Parents are trying to provide for their children children's education while the children are home and they're trying to work. There's so many things that are pressing in on us. What do you say now to someone who's in the middle of that desert?
2: Well, that's a good question. I know a lot of people are there right now. And I think I would just encourage them that, that Jesus is powerfully drawn to your threadbare heart. And he he gives us an invitation in um, Matthew 11:28. 28. He says, come to me, come to me. And, he, you know, he wants to be your comforter. And he is a friend. He's close to us. He's not far away. I think sometimes when we're feeling, we're feeling threadbare, we, we think he's far away, but he's not. He's right there with you. And I would just say, if you can take one scripture and let that just be your anchor and use that as a prayer back to him, I think that, that I have just realized that as I, as I receive his comforting ministry in my life, that he just does beautiful things in our broken places. We have to let him do that. And he wants to do that for us, I believe.
1: Amen. Amen. Well, as we we're preparing to close, would you mind praying for someone who's listening to help them find the words that they might need at this moment when they are feeling threadbare?
2: Absolutely. This is one of my favorite um, prayers. It's from Psalm sixty-eight, nineteen, And the verse says, praise the Lord. Praise God, our Savior, for each day he carries us in his arms. Lord, in the midst of all that comes against us, remind us that your power and your promises persist as well. We may be striving and needy and battle-weary, that you are triumphant, sufficient, and good. Lord, help us to remember that when we need shelter, you cover us. When we need daily bread, you're able to rain it down from heaven. And if we need a defender, you come quickly to protect us. It doesn't matter what we need, you can provide it. It's amazing to think that you do all of this while you tenderly carry us in your arms. Focusing on your daily care is such a comfort to our threadbare hearts because nobody cares for us like you do, Jesus. So we will praise you, Lord, because you carry us every single
1: day. Every single day. Once again, the book is titled Threadbare Prayer, Prayers for Hearts that Feel Hidden, Hurt, or hopeless. If you are feeling uh, all of those things, you can certainly pick up a copy of the book. Or if you know someone who's struggling, you might make this a gift. It's a it's beautifully um, published and bound, and I think you'll uh, you'll appreciate that. Stacy Thacker, thank you so much for talking with us today. I really appreciate it.
2: Well, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure.
1: It's been my pleasure as well. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We need to take a quick break, and we'll be back.
0: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
1: We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, Lee Carter, in reflecting on this election, suggests that we need to do what's unexpected on the day after the election. He points out that most of us are afraid about what the days ahead hold. The boards on buildings around us, businesses, and so on are a reminder of just how bad things have gotten. Regardless of the outcome, there will be winners and there will be losers. There will be celebrations and there will be moments of mourning. We will undoubtedly see the best in us and the worst in us. But whatever you do and however you feel, do the thing that no one expects, and that's spread hope. Now, you might wonder, what kind of hope could one expect if my candidate, fill in the blank, fails to uh, occupy the White House or the representatives that I was voting for fail to reach their goal? Well, we're thinking of a hope much higher than that. Well, people on both sides are, can be good. Uh, they want what's best for the, com- the country, what's best for their families, what's best for themselves. And they want to be free and they want to have opportunity. In fact, they have more in common than They don't. And in the wake of the most negative election of my lifetime, certainly, the nation, well, and the notion of that kind of unity has been lost. Well, Americans on both sides of every issue have dreams and hopes for a better tomorrow. Both believe that if their candidate loses, their lives are at stake. And sadly, both of them believe that if their candidate wins, there will be unrest and riots by people on the other side. So what can we do today and tomorrow that's different than yesterday? Well, we can prove them wrong. We can reach out. We can give hope. We can let them know how that um, if their candidate wins, there is a place for them on the other side. If their candidate loses, that we can still come together as um, a community. And that's the challenge these days. Well, another uh, Boyd Matheson made the point that the day after election may be as important or maybe even more important for the broader community to consider because there's so much at stake in terms of how we respond to and interpret the outcome of free and fair elections. He writes that the first Tuesday of November has come and gone. The 2020 election is over, can you believe it? Though many races will take days if not weeks to conclude and certify. The country can't collectively exhale an exhausted and exasperated nation woke up today to Wednesday morning. As critical as the first Tuesday of November is, America is always driven forward by the first Wednesday of November. And of course that's today. The drive to the first Tuesday of November, with its focus on power and control, winners and losers, distracts us from more important conversation and more pressing problems in America. Both sides of the political aisle have breathlessly declared that if their enemy on the other party, and in the other side, wins the election and assumes control, Armageddon will ensue. Gravel will be pushed over the cliff and our children will be doomed to destruction. That's never proven to be the case in America. It's time for Wednesday. To draw attention to the first Wednesday of November, uh, knowing that the answer to what ails the nation is not bound up in Washington, but in our own homes and in our neighborhoods, this morning, citizens in towns and cities across the country are going to work. Providing for loved ones, starting businesses, getting children to school or set, it, set up for school in their own homes, helping a neighbor in need, volunteering in their community, reaching out to struggling friends, engaging in the very free market economy and institutions of civil society that have driven American freedom for over two centuries. Business as usual. It's as though the politically obsessed have lost their knowledge of history. The country has survived fierce division and hotly contested elections in the past, and despite the noisy and negative chatter and clamor of flailing political consultants and media experts, Wednesday morning always comes and the country moves on. In fact, American history is filled with Wednesday mornings following great wars, social strife, scandals at the highest levels of government, 9-11 riots, mass shootings, and contested elections— Wednesday morning has always come, and it comes because the American people make it come with a belief in a better day ahead, a belief in tomorrow. We've seen it before. We've experienced. We've done it before. Despite the constant drumbeat bemoaning a deeply divided and angry America, I remain convinced that American people are starving for elevated dialogue, searching for inspiring ideas and striving to find hope in heroes worthy of emulation. As always, a look back in history provides a clear vision of what is needed for a 2020 version of Wednesday morning. Thomas Jefferson was a compelling and complex, inspired and flawed human like the rest of us. He was a slave owner and he also provided words and leadership that compelled Americans toward building bridges of unity, harmony and opportunity. His first inaugural address is instructive in our divisive and turmoil-ridden time. President Jefferson won an election so nasty and contentious that many feared that the election was going to lead to riots, rebellion, and even revolution. In a sign of humility and as a signal of national unity, Jefferson entered the Senate chamber of the Capitol dressed as an ordinary citizen. Washington and Adams had both worn ceremonial swords as they took the oath of office. Thomas Jefferson left the sword at home. Jefferson said all Two, all will bear in mind this sacred principle that though the will of the majority is in all cases to prevail, that will to be rightful must be reasonable, that the minority possess their equal rights, which equal law must protect. Let us then, fellow citizens, unite with one heart and one mind. Now, that might be asking too much in the 21st century, but he went on to um, argue in favor of unity. Unity is not found in conformity. Jefferson recognized that oneness was not sameness in America and that the fledgling constitutional republic was dependent on people disagreeing better, not less. People disagreeing better, not less. He knew that oneness was found in a Wednesday morning approach to all that united the nation. He eloquently declared to the people that every difference of opinion is not a difference of principle. To honor the first Wednesday of November, we too should leave our virtual weapons. We must stop demonizing those who, uh, with differing opinions, or question the patriotism of those whose approach to policy and progress is contrary to our own. It is so tempting uh, to do that, but it is not useful and healthy for the Republic. The American Civil War was an extended Tuesday test for the country. America was divided, the fabric of society was tattered, and the future of the nation seemed to hang by a thread. On a singular Wednesday morning moment on a battlefield at Gettysburg, President Abraham Lincoln challenged the living to step boldly and nobly into a new day. We often quote and rightly reference Lincoln's address when we honor those who paid the ultimate price while standing for the principles of freedom. We note that the honored dead gave the last full measure of devotion. We often miss, however, lincoln's powerful and immediate pivot to the future to us in the crescendo and cadence of freedom he called on our better angels saying it is for us the living that we be there dedicated dedicated that we take increased devotion and above all that we here highly resolve he recognized that those he honored on that extraordinary wednesday morning moment had already paid the price done their part and passed their test He knew the real question was a question for the ages, whether each of us, each of us would highly resolve to do our individual duty on our own Wednesday morning. The question of our commitment uh, to Wednesday morning is simple. As Lincoln asks, will we take increased devotion to the principles that have fostered the greatest civilization the world has ever known? Will we be so dedicated to the unfinished work and the task before us? Will we be as highly resolved to the cause of freedom as those who have gone before? Our answers to those questions will have profound consequences for our country and for our relationships. Our communities need more highly resolved women and men who care about creating better neighborhoods and a better nation. Regardless of whether our candidates or uh, causes prevailed on the first Tuesday of November in 2020, we can be thankful for that ultimate right to raise our voices and vote our values, After the votes are counted and the victors declared, we should remember that the real strength of the nation lies in its people, its neighborhoods, its homes, and its families. That's why in America, Wednesday morning, the day after the first Tuesday in November, the day after Election Day, will always matter. Wednesday morning always comes. What it looks like is up to you and I. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back to wrap things up.
0: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're
1: listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We've been talking about the election. The election day has now come and gone, and it's the Wednesday after the election, and the days ahead will determine much about the nature of our country. I think most of us feel like the person that we, in uh, persons that we supported, would have led the country in a direction that we would have preferred that would be in our best interest while others with whom we disagree felt the same way about the individuals they supported and somehow in the midst of it all we've got to get along with one another now that's true for the nation but it's even more true for evangelicals and i appreciated ted olson uh, on the subject he wrote for christianity today in which he made the point that civility for christians is not enough that's not the goal to simply be civil to one another And he writes that it's too uh, banal to say that the 2020 election is dividing American evangelicals. We've always been politically divided, which some see as a strength of a a renewal movement transcending electoral politics. No, the 2020 election has beaten and broken American evangelicals, not so much divided as dismembered. Um, We're tired of the election, but even more tired of each other. And it's going to get worse in the coming weeks. Now, is that a prophetic word or is that a prediction? Can it be different? Lee goes on to write, in 2016, longstanding animus toward Hillary Clinton explained much of the exit poll data about white evangelicals who voted for Donald Trump. This year, a significant uptick of self-described evangelicals is voting enthusiastically for Trump and not merely against the alternative. For many, the vote is a referendum not simply on convictions on abortion and racial injustice, but on whether you really are a Christian. As Pastor John MacArthur says, he told Trump, any real true believer is going to be on your side in this election, end quote. That's an unfortunate statement to be made by a pastor. But nonetheless, conversely, many Christian opponents of Trump see the pastor and ministry leader who support him as idolaters at best and more likely frauds. Well, now is not the time to revisit exit polls or debate the designation evangelical, but we do expect a fresh round of believers to see the data and say, if that's what evangelicals means, I'm not it. Today's American Christian flips Amos uh, 3-3's questions on its head. Can two walk together except they uh, be agreed? And asks, why would I want to walk together with them? Pointing the finger at the ideological other. It's not cowardly, uh, both side-ism, to call us of myriad political convictions, to repent of bitterness. True, the Bible warns against anger, Um, Have wrongly been used by powerful and uh, to silence the calls for justice, but it's hard to open your Bible without hitting a command to put away bitterness and wrath. So let's start there. Let us end there, nor let us settle for a call to civility. Christians should match their moral clarity with civility, but civility is insufficient. As Christians, we are commanded to love, to love each other, to love our enemies, and to love our enemies when they are each other. Let me just pause that for a moment. Love, Paul tells us, keeps no record of wrongs, but love does stand up against them. Jeremiah contends that we cannot dress deep and ghastly wounds as though they are scratches saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. As Martin Luther King Jr. put it, love that does not satisfy justice is not love at all. It's merely a sentimental affection, little more than what one would have for a pet. Love at its best is justice, um, concretized, if you will, and justice, Uh, At its best, he said, is love correcting everything that stands against love. So love means that we should unselfishly warn against idolatry, apostasy, injustice, and those, uh, those things that endanger body and soul even as we are careful not to throw around such accusations lightly. It even means that we don't have to think that everybody who calls themselves a Christian really is one. Watch out for false prophets, Jesus said. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit, you will recognize them. Not that there is a need to go false prophet hunting. The enemy will sow seeds among uh, the wheat, Jesus promised. It's not the servant's job to pull them up. He said, we are not able to separate the weeds from the wheat, the wheat from the tares, if you will, leave that to him. Still, some of us can't help but try to rid our field of weeds and leave only lovable, real, true believers, despite Jesus' warning that this harms the people of his kingdom. Others are tempted to leave the field of evangelical Protestantism altogether and look for greener grass, some pristine, weedless field. They're tired of waiting for the sower's sickle, like Jonah, so outraged by idolatry and wickedness that he'd rather. Flee than love. We'd rather see Nineveh's destruction than its redemption. God hates injustice. He hates racism. God hates abortion. And yet God's uh, uh, question to us is the same as uh, the self-appointed weeder and to Jonah when he um, uh, when his plant died. Do you do well to be angry? Is your anger leading toward love or away from it? Simply being civil with one another, and I'm speaking to and of believers is insufficient. We are called to something much deeper and more profound. And I think when you consider the division that exists between us, not necessarily theologically, because we are we share a, a common heritage in Christ, but the divisions that we have based on our politics can be so deep, it seems that it's impossible uh, to heal that wound. And yet, we are called as followers of Jesus, to do just that, to love one another, even when we consider, based on our political views, to be enemies of one another. There is no escape. And the truth is, we cannot do what God is calling us to do apart from the Holy Spirit. So I think the place to begin uh, to release the vitriol that we may have for one another um, is to ask the Holy Spirit to fill us to change our perspective, to give us the capacity to love those that we believe are uh, are wrong on these political issues. Now, we're not talking about sanctioning evil. That's that's something different, but we are told to love one another, and it's central to our witness to the world. So on this Wednesday, following the first, uh, first Tuesday of November in an election year, this is our challenge. And I wanted to close this segment with a scripture that was uh, sent to me by Pastor Greg Allen, I quoted it about a week or so ago that I think is a good place for us to start as we're praying for the Holy Spirit to change our hearts, to give us the capacity. I'm not talking about our views necessarily, but to change our hearts toward one another, to give us the capacity to love one another, not just be civil, but to have a genuine love for one another as the the body of Christ. Well, I was sent a scripture by Pastor Greg Allen, it's from Psalm 146, 1 through 10. If you are discouraged by the outcome of election or put too much hope and trust in the election to save us, this is a good reminder. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. While I live, I will praise the Lord. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Do not put your trust in princes, in elections, in authorities, nor in a son of man in whom there is no help. His spirit departs. He returns to the earth. In that very day, his plans perish. These are temporal people with limited capacities. Happy is he who has the Lord of Jacob for his help, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps truth forever. Truth. Who executes justice for the oppressed. Who gives food to the hungry. The Lord gives freedom to the prisoners. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord raises those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the strangers. He relieves the fatherless and widows. By the way of the wicked, he turns upside down. The Lord shall reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. Let's keep our trust and confidence in him. Good night.
0: Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast.